The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. I had this feeling like, oh, I'm onto something. I was like picking up the energy of something. You know, I had tapped into some something, like comfort. People wanted comfort. They liked the simplicity. They got the idea. Right before I went to interview Eileen Fisher, a colleague of mine asked me if Eileen was kind of like Meryl Streep's character in A Devil Wears Prada, given that she runs a behemoth fashion empire. I actually found myself laughing out loud, and not because my colleague was accurate, but because Eileen Fisher couldn't be more opposite. Eileen is thoughtful, quiet, kind, and I would even go so far as to say a little bit shy, something that Eileen has said herself. She's definitely not the archetype of someone who has founded and built a half-billion-dollar fashion company, and that's also what makes Eileen so special. She does things differently. She does things guided by her own intuition and not by what other people think. This intuition has been the driving force behind the brand's aspirations to be one of the most sustainable clothing lines in the world by 2020, to build an ESOP structure that has sold 40% of the company back to employees, and to do things like pioneer a collaborative leadership group structure in the workplace. She still is reluctant to call herself the CEO. Over three years ago, Eileen was on the cover of Conscious Company Magazine for a third issue, and I got the chance to sit down with her again to hear her founding story of how she built the company, her philosophy on leadership, and how she stays true to her inner voice that has guided the brand for over 30 years. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. Really how I think of starting the business, I think of being in Japan and, and first falling in love with the kimono and the sort of simple Japanese aesthetic and um, the little wide leg pants and something about um, the whole timelessness of the Japanese design and the kimono. How it was fascinating me that the kimono, that one simple shape, um, was all they wore, that one shape for a thousand years. So I was just curious, you know, what makes a design, you know, so timeless. And so I guess was that was that? a, that would have been, yikes, I don't remember things in years, probably 78, 77, something like that. Yeah, I didn't start the company till 1984. Um, so the idea started brewing in my mind, you know. Um, I was working in graphics and uh, at the time, and I'd done some interior design. I actually studied home interior design in college. Um, so I really came at 
clothing from a different angle. It wasn't, I wasn't a trained clothing designer, so I didn't understand how to drape the body or how to design into fashion trends, or I wasn't thinking like that. I was thinking, you know, I had background in interiors and graphics, so I was thinking more like a design, like I was trying to solve a problem, like the problem of my own wardrobe or the fact that I, I hated wearing a uniform, but I liked the simplicity so I wanted to create, I wanted to make something that, um, you know, that made my life simpler, that made getting dressed and shopping um, more a, a kind of a system thing, you know, clothes that, that work together and that were simple. And I just wanted to look professional and simple, like a designer or something like a designer. <laughs> it's a funny thing, you know, how does a designer look? Anyway, that's side conversation. But, but I had this idea brewing in my mind for probably five years or maybe more before I, you know, I tried a few things, uh, hired someone to help me sketch some of the ideas and, um, you know, uh, just couldn't figure out how to get it to, to come together or something. And I, I, I ended up at this boutique show with a friend who was a jewelry designer. And uh, so I saw how other people were presenting their their work, you know, small designers at this show. Um, it was at the Coliseum at the time. And I just remember thinking, oh, I see. I, I could put it together. I could make the things. I could hang them up and then people would come by and write orders if they liked it, you know. So it was like I could all of a sudden, it was almost like I could see the way of marketing it, which before that I, I was always thinking I had friends who were designers and they would go to try to sell things, to stand in line at the, to see the buyers at the department stores at Henry Bendel or Bloomingdale's or something like that. And I just remember thinking, I could never do that. I'm too shy. It would be too um, upsetting to have people just walk, you walk in, you bring your work that you've been working on, and then they just say, nope, you know. Uh, so that, that seemed too risky for my ego at the time or my, you know, shy, you know, whatever. So, but when I saw that I could put it together and I could present it, then it seemed like, oh, I see, I can do this. So, so I remember I committed to do the show just to take a small wall in the back. And um, I went home and started talking to friends and a friend introduced me to a pattern maker and she came and helped me make the first few garments. And um, I ended up at the boutique show and just took eight orders, small orders, you know, and it was like the first day I didn't have prices on them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and um, so, you know, then I just, I just listened and learned and, you know, listened to what the buyers said. Well, we like it, the fabric's a little stiff or, you know, hmm, what are you trying to do? And they, they were interested, you know. And um, so then I went back to the next show and took in the feedback and, you know, found a, a, a textured knit that I loved and changed the colors and, you know, added a few more styles. And, and then, you know, people stood in line to write orders. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, my, I sold $40,000 of the clothes at my second show. And I was like, I'm in business here, you know. And how old were you when this was? Oh, I was 33. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember kind of what it felt like to have those first people buy your clothes? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was confirming. It was like... Oh, they get it, you know. It was like, it was exciting. It was, I felt seen. You know, I was always this shy person, you know. And it was hard to get my work out there or, 
you know, I'd work with small clients and just one project at a time. And sometimes they would like it, sometimes they wouldn't, or they'd want these changes. And I, you know, it was hard, you know, whereas this was like, oh, I could put it out there and then people would come by and go like, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, so it was, it was, it was exciting. Yeah. And I felt like I had this feeling like, oh, I'm onto something. I was like picking up the energy of something. You know, I had tapped into some something, like comfort. People wanted comfort. They liked the simplicity. They got the idea, you know. Yeah, so that was, that was exciting. Yeah. So $40,000 at your second show. Yeah, yeah. How, were, how was kind of that first year for you? Yeah, intense. Very intense. <laughs> it was just like a day by day, you know, like, oh, now what? How, how do I get the money, you know, to produce $40,000 of the orders you need, like, $20,000 of the money. You know, you need 20, you know, you need fabric, you need. So I had to work that out. But I felt confident to borrow money at that point because I had these orders in my hand. You know, I don't think I could have just borrowed on the idea because mm-hmm. I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know what I needed. So once I knew what I needed and I knew that if I got the fabric and had the thing sewn and shipped everything, that, that I would get the money back. So I felt like I was borrowing against you know, something like that I could double my money, you know. And so it, was, it felt comfortable to borrow, mm. you know. Comfortable, not comfortable, but I borrowed small amounts from friends and family and, you know, a few thousand dollars here and there. And in the beginning, I gave people 2% a month interest for um, short-term loans because I needed about three months to turn the product and get it shipped and had to ship everything COD at that time. And then sometimes the little stores wouldn't have the money to pay, so they'd ship the box back. <laughs> I lived on the fourth floor of a loft in Tribeca. <laughs> and so, like, every time I'd come home and see a box at the bottom of the stairs, I'd be like, oh, no. I have to carry the box up <laughs> and call the store. Well, we couldn't afford to pay for it that day, so, you know, we sent it back. But could you send it back to us again? <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. But it worked out. Really, it was only a small percentage of the stores that was a problem and mostly they love the product right away and we're calling could they get more when could they get more so that was exciting too to feel oh it almost like it had an energy of its own mm. so it sounds like you were really kind of learning on the fly yeah um, yeah, yeah, in yeah that first year definitely is there anything that you now that you have the benefit of being able to look back is there anything that you wish you would have done differently in the first year or two oh yeah I, I, I probably not because, you know, I just, I think I was just very in it and very kind of, um, I didn't know. So I just did what was in front of me. I just woke up and did my best every day, you know, and I think that actually, um, that's a good thing. And so I guess I would just do that again like that. I don't know what I would have done differently. I think... Yeah, I mean, I think I can say where I've made mistakes over the years, more so than in the beginning, you know. I think even in the beginning, I was always asking people, you know, what they thought and whether it was like friends having gathering and coming over and, you know, what do they think of the clothes and um, to, you know, should I open a store, you know, and 
you know, I had some people who wanted to lend me money. They didn't want to lend me money. They wanted to buy 25% of the company for $25,000. <laughs> and I remember thinking, whoa, that's a lot to give away for $25,000, you know. And I could understand to them, I was just this little company, and they liked what I was doing and wanted to, you know, support it. But to me, I was like, well, I would borrow the $25,000 and pay you back good interest, but I don't think I want to sell that much of my company for $25,000, you know. So anyway, that, I, I didn't do that. So I'm more like patting myself on the back and saying, good thing you didn't do that one. <laughs> but I did get some advice about that kind of thing, about if you can afford to pay for it yourself, if you can find a way to borrow the money, if you believe in the idea, then uh, don't give away a piece of the business if you don't have to. Agreed. Now, not all businesses work that way. You know, some businesses really have to start, you know, start fast. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was opening a store, I would have, which is why I didn't do it. I didn't have the money. And, you know, I would have had to, you know, renovate, pay the rent, buy inventory, all those things. That would have been an expensive endeavor. Mm -hmm. So... So now we're over 30 years later, and right. you do have many stores, <laughs> right. um, and I doubt it's we can encapsulate 30-plus years of experience right. into a single podcast, but I'm curious about how you grew the brand, and yeah. if there were some pivotal moments yeah. along the way that you still think back on. Yeah. I really always think of it as very organic and a sort of very kind of natural growth. It, it, it never felt like people always say, well, you know... What, did you take a leap at some point? Did you take a big risk? You know, nothing ever felt like a big risk. You know, I did things like I moved out of my loft. I, I rented some space for a while in a friend's loft. Actually, she worked for me. And then I rented a 5,000-square-foot space. It felt like a little bit of a leap, but not huge, you know, in terms of the fact that I, I could figure out, you know, how to pay the rent and manage it. Um, we opened a store on Mad Madison Avenue. That was kind of a leap after only having a tiny store on East 9th Street. But because I had the tiny store on East 9th Street, I could imagine, you know, if this store on East 9th Street can sell $1,000 of the clothes a day, well, I could easily sell 3000 a day on Madison Avenue, you know, which I was my break-even point or something. So I was like, ah, I can do that. So it didn't even feel like a big leap, even though the renovation was expensive and in those days, I mean, probably not if I look back and think really wasn't that much that we spent, but at the time it seemed like a lot. So you're growing this company. I'm curious if you have thoughts on beyond just kind of following this organic path. Right. What, what were some of the reasons why you think that this brand was successful? Uh, I think that it was a powerful idea. Simple clothes, timeless, comfortable kind of the system, the concept was powerful. I think it was much bigger than me. I think I was just kind of channeling it or tapping into it or something, and I picked up the energy of the thing. And so I think the thing that's made it successful is trying to stay true to that idea. I, I don't think we always have. I think we slip, around, you know, we, we go off a little and then we go like, wait, 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 that's too far, or oh, that was interesting, that worked, you know? Like things I didn't think could work. 
You know, there was a moment in time that I wouldn't do stripes, for example, you know, like no stripes, no patterns. I remember at the, a boutique show one time, somebody coming up to me and saying, you know, your line is great. If you just had a really great pattern, you know, like I was thinking about that, like animal print or something like that would be perfect. And I'm like, yikes. <laughs> well, huh. then you would only look at the animal print and you wouldn't look at all the other simple things, you know. So the, the, the line to walk is how do we innovate? How do we stay fresh? How do we be new? But stay timeless and stay true to the essence and the core idea. So th th that's been the hard work, I think, because we've stayed true enough. You know, even when we go off a little, we come back. And, you know, so I think that I think that's what's been the success. Mm. I, I also think there is inside the staying true, there's an innovation, a way to innovate, you know, new fabric, like I'm wearing the responsible wool. Oh, it feels so good. You know, it's a new fabric. And we did a lot of work with the supply chain to to. Um, make the fabric to to connect with the farmers and you know the way they raise the sheep and you know to do it responsibly and um, I think those kind of things make a huge difference so there, there's a lot of innovation for us in um, both the materials that we find and so I, I and we're all about fabric that's an important part of our design you know so we innovate in that area but now it's very much in the sustainable aspects of the work and but when we get amazing products, when we're really we're going at to making it more sustainable, and then we get amazing products out of it, or like we went to Peru and found this amazing organic cotton, and you know really work with the suppliers to to make it, you know the products we wanted and the kind of refine it, and, and um, it's just been amazing that cotton, you know, and um, but it, it started out we were just pursuing organic cotton, you know, and then. And then it became this like, whoa, that's an amazing, amazing yarn, so soft. So you've already talked a little bit about this, um, about the financing component of oh, this. Yeah. So at the oh, beginning. You, you get me talking about fabric and I go off, but okay, no, no. money, financing, <laughs> business, right. Okay, it's all connected. It's all connected. So at the beginning, it sounded like you were doing lo some low-interest loans from friends yes, and family. Right. Um, and then how, how have do we get you from there? financed right. this from there? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the company has been profitable since the beginning, you know, with a few trip-ups here and there, but basically pretty profitable. And so we were able to self-fund most of the time. Um, we did need money to get through the season, just like I talked about in the beginning. I needed to borrow, to you know, 20000 to make the $40,000 worth of product. Um, so we need... Uh, I don't know if we still need to borrow during peak production moments. Um, maybe not anymore, but we did, um, and, and probably until pretty recently, you know, have to borrow through those peak moments. So, so we have lines of credit from banks, um, but they don't take ownership. You know, they just charge interest, and. Um, we work with suppliers, and the suppliers give us 30 days or 60 days or, you know, time to pay, time to produce and deliver and, you know, like that. Mm. So it's sort of a sort of a kind of following, following it all, you know, keeping it, keeping it all kind of working and in motion and, you know, <sighs> yeah. 
Although in the early days, there were times where I was like, oh, which bills can we pay today? <laughs> there were moments where I was like, oh, why aren't those people paying their bill? How am I going to pay mine if they don't pay? You know, <laughs> Stuff like that. We had some moments, but and there was somehow, there was always this kind of magical feeling like um, this was meant to be and, you know, this is working somehow. And that doesn't mean it wasn't really hard. There were many, many difficult moments. Um, and, and still are. There's still difficult things always that happen. But, um, you know, you keep, you keep at it and you try hard to stay true to what you feel is the essence of what I feel is important or the essence of the thing. So speaking of ownership, um, yes. you guys are still privately held. Right. And I was right. curious about that decision and why it's important for you to mm-hmm. be your private company. Yeah. Wow. I'm so grateful that that worked that way. You know, there was one moment in time when we actually considered going public, thinking, well, that's what companies do. Maybe we should consider that. And um, and and one of the, the things, uh, well, let's see, what do I want to say about I'm, being privately owned? It just allows us to think more long term. We're not answering to, to the investors every quarter. You know, we do have to be profitable and we answer to our internal investors, which is our, our employees, because our employees own 40 percent. You know, so we have this ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Uh, so we want to maintain our profitability so that their, you know, retirement money goes, goes up. So it's so people care and, you know, they, they care about what we're spending money on and how we're spending money and they're, they're part of it, you know. So actually we started before the employee stock ownership, we started doing, giving profit sharing. As soon as there was extra money, it it was just my impulse to share. That's just what I do. That's what feels, feels right. You know, these people are working as hard as me, you know, they, they deserve to pay when it works, to be paid more when it works, you know. So I grew up in a family with seven kids, so we shared everything, clothes, food, everything, you know. So that was just natural to me. Mm. Yeah. With that ESOP structure, is there any recommendations that you have for other business owners or leaders yeah. who want to do that? The ESOP. Yep. Yeah, ESOP's a little complicated, um, but but I I think it's worth it. Um, you know, I've been wrestling with. I started with doing I think thirty percent, and then I sold another eight or ten, thirty one, I don't know, something like that. It's about forty today. Uh, um, yeah, I am. I'm I'm glad though that I'm I didn't sell past the fifty because it gives me the opportunity to stay in control, mm-hmm. <laughs> and not that I want to stay in control, but I want to make sure the company stays true to itself. It's easy to go off, you know. And so, um, uh, for now, that seems right to hold on to 60%. Um, It's a good thing, you know, there's a lot of uh, tax benefits and, you know, uh, diversifying, you know, my personal portfolio and, all of those. That, so that's a good thing. But I like the idea of just even profit sharing if, if the ESOP's too complicated for people. Um, I don't know what size company it starts to make sense, but even just starting with profit sharing, I think every company should, I think it should be mandatory that we should have to share profits. You know, I think it should be at least 10%. We share more than that, usually 25 or so. Um, and I just think it's only fair. 
And I think we have a huge problem in this country and in the world with the rich getting richer, the top 1%. You know, if you have money, it's easier to make money. It's, you know, it's you invest and all of that. But, you know, if you're just working hard every day, you know, you, I think you deserve to participate in the success of the companies you participate in and you give your energy to. Mm. So Plus, I think it's good for business, not to interrupt you, but I think it's, I think it, it's good for business. People take ownership, a sense of ownership. Yeah. So the things that you just were saying just kind of sparked this feeling in me of you being a true leader. Mm. Um, and I also know that you and I have talked a little bit about leadership, but right. also your particular leadership style, which is one that is more based on listening and yeah. kind of pulling back a little bit. And I was just curious about reflecting a little bit on what type of leader you are yeah. and what, how you found your own leadership style. Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah, leader is always a word I struggle to fully identify with. So when you say it, I go like, oh, really? Leader. Hmm. Well, I always kind of lead very loosely and sort of from the side. So I'm trying to accept my leadership role. What is that? And um, trying to lean into it a little bit more. But being, being shy, I, always, I was always a listener. You know, just even as a kid, I didn't say too much. I was listening to people all the time. So I think that I just developed that as my way, you know, of like just really listening. Even in the early days I was talking about the boutique show, I remember that I was always, you know, I'd sit on the other side of the table, sit with the buyer. What do you, what do you think? What do you like? What, why do you think that works? What, what do you think would make it better? You know, no prints. No, 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 not prints. <laughs> no, but, but they, you know, they were really helpful because they understood the customer. And so listening to them really helped me to refine the idea and build into serving more customers. Um, a lot of other designers would show their work and say, this is it, this is my vision, you know, like it or leave it, you know, buy it or don't. And, you know, some of that is true. You know, if you don't like the general thing I'm doing, you, you don't, you're not going to come in and buy it. Um, but that idea of listening, um, I think that was just in some ways by default, in some ways because speaking has been so hard for me, I developed that as my tool, as my way of feeling, finding my way. Um, yeah, the other thing I said is I think because I'm in clothing, fabric, I, and I have a kind of a sense of energy or some kind of feeling, I sort of feel my way around things. I, I kind of I have a lot of intuition, like, oh, I don't know if that idea works. Oh, oh yes, that, you know, oh, my goodness, that's the right thing, you know. I remember years ago when we found this fabric called washable wool, which we still sell today. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, what is that? That's amazing. That's perfect. Oh, my God. We could sell $100 million with that fabric alone. It's so, it's just like I could feel how the customers were just going to go crazy, how it was just going to serve them, you know, and it was just going to work. Um, and you could wash it. That was incredible. Um, so... Uh, so it's sort of like that feeling my way or sensing, feeling, and listening. Those were, I guess. So then the other thing that I would say about my leadership, huh, leadership, I have to say it almost tentatively, trying not to apologize. Um, but I think that for me, because this is a company that's about art and business, uh, so I think the creative work is really the key part. It's what drives the business. When we get the creative right, it works. When the product is right, when the 
you know, customers want what we're doing because it's right, um, then it works. So I, I always tried to stay at the creative center of the company. So I called myself chief creative officer, N- never called myself CEO. Uh, some people called me CEO, but I never actually adopted that title because um, I always felt that the, it, it, you know, the center, the spark, the creative piece was what was driving this idea forward. And so building on that, yes. <laughs> um, in a recent article in the New York Times, I think it was, it says uh-huh. you guys have a leadership group. Oh, yes. <laughs> you have a leadership group, not a CEO. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just curious, how does that work? Um, most people have a lot of preconceptions about yeah. how a leadership group and feeling yeah. like, oh my God, that it would be a terrible idea. How does it work <laughs> for you all? Well, you know, it's partly great and partly terrible, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's something that we're constantly thinking about and constantly refining and working on. How do we do this? What's working about it? What isn't? Um, for years, we had a small team, three people. Um, lately, we have six. One just left. Now we have five. You know, so um, we're we're wrestling with <clears throat> what it is and how it works and what's good about it. Um, but we do believe, in general, that this collective leadership model works, uh, and and it's not the not the official kind of CEO, one person making the decisions and threading everything together and connecting all the dots. So it's more like, how do you have more more voices from different angles into the big decision making? And, um, you know, we have a process which I described somewhere called that we use called deep democracy, which I could go down a rabbit hole with this one. I don't know if I should. Please do. But, please okay. Do. <laughs> no, it's just about, you know, we're trying to figure out how to make a decision on uh, things that are important. So they'll come into the group and people will put their thumbs up or thumbs down or thumbs sideways. You know, what do they agree or disagree or um, are they still not sure? Um, so if they're not sure, the idea is to you know, ask questions, what, what questions need to be answered, is there more research that needs to be done? So where am I going with this? So the, the um, thumbs up, thumbs down, the, the idea is to get everybody aligned, you know, so that you, people walk out of the room and it's not like the CEO says we're going this way and everybody has to jump in the boat and go that way. But it's kind of like, you know, there's some disagreement, you know, how do we talk that through? How do we understand the pros and cons of what we're doing? And uh, then, you know, how do we then say, you know, in most cases people come around and, and after talking it through or doing a little more research or studying the parts that were worrying them. Uh, and then we, you know, if it's a decision to move forward, we move forward together. And what happens is you don't have people going like, wait a minute, why are we doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of undermining the decision. We do have places where things kind of get confused and decisions get made over here that maybe people wonder how did that happen, and, and that creates the problem. So what we're trying to do is figure out what's good about the collective model, where it works, how it works, you know, and we're no experts. We've been doing a collective model of sorts forever. And we see the downsides. We see where it can get very circular and very stuck. Um, and that's why we're trying to bring in processes to move things more forward. Um, so we don't have all the answers is really the bottom line. But but I believe I believe in the, with the right structure as we're 
getting better with it, um, that we're, it's going to even work better. Mm. So I think we, there's a lot of potential. This model doesn't really fully exist out there, I think, you know. So we're breaking the mold a little, and, you know, it's hard to get the whole thing flowing, you know. So I still believe more voices, you know, uh, makes for a better um, solution, better, better, uh, better plan. It's a little slower, but makes for better decision-making. So another thing I wanted to ask you about um, is your grant program. Yes, Um, yes. You have generously set up this grant program. Right, right, right. Helping female entrepreneurs with this grant program. You're generous enough last year, actually many of the grant award winners you sponsored and they came to our World Changing Women's Summit in February. We had multiple women there and it was extraordinary. Um, Right. One question oh, I have good. for you is why support young female entrepreneurs? Oh, yeah. And then maybe not young female right. entrepreneurs. Right. Well, you know, uh, women, uh, I really believe women do business differently. And, and I believe we need to be out there. Half of the business owners should be women in the world. And whatever I can do to do a little piece to move that forward you know, I, I think we bring a different mindset and a different, um, a more collaborative process, um, you know, um, more all around, I, you know, caring about people in the process and um, the environment, those kinds of values. It's not that men don't have them, they do, but um, business has been built on this model of it's about profit. You have to be fiscally responsible. You know, that's how you're measured all the way through, you know, and you could be totally polluting the water or the air. And as long as you're profitable, you know, that's great, you know. But, you know, I, I don't agree with that. I think, I think we have to take fuller responsibility for all that we do, you know. So I, I think women um, are more holistic in their way of thinking about that. and maybe haven't been brought up as much in the business world and so haven't, like me with the fashion industry, I wasn't, didn't grow up in that world, so I didn't learn you know, the uh, specific way to design clothes for planned obsolescence. I designed it, learned a different idea. So I think women have a different idea because we just didn't, you know, maybe we weren't as included and certainly in the higher levels of business. So I think, um, I think we have a lot to offer in different way of thinking and, uh, you know, they say, and you've probably repeated this a million times, one woman on a board makes the company more profitable. And, you know, I, I think I quoted the New York Times article that I was interviewed by um, Kevin O'Leary, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, from Shark Tank. And he said that he, um, he sees women's businesses as more successful, um, that he's now investing 70% of his money in women-owned businesses because... They think more long-term is what he says, and they're more realistic about their goals. And I also would like to add that I think we're more collaborative, and I think we understand the energy of the group and you know, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to work together uh, in different ways that actually, that actually work for business. Mm. All right, so I want to turn a little bit more internal for you. Okay. Um, what are you struggling most with right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I'm struggling with, okay, so I'm 68 years old and I'm struggling with my role at the company and, uh, you know, really thinking about the creative leadership in the company, um, how I, what happens to the company as I move on, you know, I don't, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about it and I really believe this company is about the big idea that's driving it. And uh, we have a lot of talent. Um, but, you know, uh, and I'm thinking, what, is, what do I need to feel safe to leave this company, you know, to the next generation? And, and so I think that it's understanding and, and both the, the, the creative aspects, the business, what, what, how the business creative work, and the cultural aspects. What is the legacy of Eileen Fisher? I'm really trying to sort of step out of the work and think about what it is and how, how we tell the story and how we carry on. I, I think there's no rocket science about this design work. The idea may have, I may have tapped into it, but it's out there. It's nothing particularly wildly unique that we can't, you know, hold on to it, or that requires me. You know, I believe, like I talk about, like Bauhaus design. You know, it's 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 not so dependent. It wasn't the concept. wasn't just a particular person. It was a collective kind of idea, a way of thinking philosophically about design. And I, I feel like that's what my work is about, or the work of the company is about. And so I think you know, just embedding those principles into the core design work, you know, into, um, you know, the holistic um, brand, you know, what, what is it, how does it, how does it, how does it live on with the values and the, the basic DNA, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on, which is a lot. That is a yeah, lot. <laughs> yeah, but I'm optimistic, a lot of good things happening in that world. So I feel, I feel like we'll get there. Good. So I'm curious on kind of the day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. What keeps you grounded? And also just how have you handled the stress of kind of holding yeah. this brand for 30-plus yeah. years? I did want to say one more thing about the last topic, mm -hmm. which was about uh, the other thing that we are working on, which is, I think makes the difficult moment is that we are trying to weave together the parts and pieces of the whole ecosystem. You know, so um, we have different aspects of the brand now with our, our recycle program, our take back, renew, you know, remade, you know, redesigned, you know, you know, all of these parts and pieces, and also the women's work that we're doing, both supporting entrepreneurs, our girls program, our Women Together program, all of these different parts and pieces. So I feel like, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is make sure those pieces get woven into the fabric. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, of the company, you know, so that, because they're really important to me. And so I want to make sure I leave that, that intact. Mm. So your other question then about what sustains me or what keeps me grounded, uh, then, then that's the presumption that I am grounded. <laughs> um, so I would say that uh, I'm often not so grounded, but I do meditate every morning and I do yoga and it helps me a lot. Um, and I journal and um, uh, 
those kind of things are really important. We, we have our moment of silence, you know, that, that helps me to remember to try to stay grounded and, you know, um, yeah, trying to be conscious. I like the name of your um, magazine and your, um, uh, the work that you're doing around conscious companies. I, I really I think that trying to stay conscious, trying to be kind of keep coming back in any moment you know, I, I talk about the micro moments of living, you know, to try to keep remembering to ground, to come back, to breathe. Oh, you know, I can be with this difficult conversation. I can be in this difficult moment and just stop myself, slow down, ground. Mm. I get I get kind of like spinning around some days and uh just to try to design, you know, the whole kind of thing can be a little chaotic at times. Sometimes you have to just throw all the colors up in the air and go like, what, what, let's see how it falls and have a little, there has to be a little chaos sometimes, you know, moments where you just can't, things are blurry and you can't make sense out of it. And so, you know, being able to allow the chaos, you know, is also something I'm pretty good at. Mm. I grew up in a chaotic family, seven kids, you know, so I'm pretty comfortable with chaos. Um, but I also, being a designer, I like to order things. I like to, you know, kind of bring it together and try to make order. So I have to come back and ground. And there's moments to have chaos and moments to, you know, come back and ground. Mm. So something that you've mentioned, and it's also come up on numerous of these podcast recordings, is kind of a lot of the success being built upon listening to your inner guidance and right. your inner voice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm curious for you, kind of in these moments of chaos um, yeah. and these times when you don't feel grounded, how do you yeah. tap in and listen yeah. to that guidance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, um, I sit and I, uh, I breathe and I try to come into my body. You know, my body helps me. You know, like I was talking earlier about sensing my way, feeling my way. Like my body tells me a lot, you know. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. Eat this. Don't eat this. You know, um, say that. Try not to say that. <laughs> um, but it's sort of, uh, um, I do a lot of sort of, like I was talking about yoga. Um, but I, I'll stretch. I'll stop. And I'll stretch, do sort of embodiment, kind of come back to my body that that helps to um, helps me to come back and remember, you know, that it's okay, that it's all it's all okay. It's just I'm just on the journey. It's in process. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. The leadership team, for example, you know, when you ask a question like that, I could go down a rabbit hole because I'm really trying to understand it, or, you know, uh, you know, the ecosystem and how it all weaves together, and you know, um, things I'm struggling with and trying to know, um, but also knowing that it's okay to not know. I keep reminding myself, I, you know, I don't know yet, but um, when it's time to be clear, it will come, you know, and try to remember that that it's okay to just be with the, the difficult moments and the hard things and the chaos and know that it will clear and, and try to, you know, just know that in the, in the, in the difficult moments, you know, that, that uh, 
we will find the answers, you know. Like I talk, I love talking about the recycle program because it's just like these mountains of fabrics, you know, these mountains of old clothes coming back. And, you know, it could be just seen as this massive problem and it's this massive waste. You know, we are throwing away so many clothes, everyone, every year that it's crazy. It's just, I don't even know how many million pounds of, it's just a ton, I don't even know. It's something really crazy amount of clothes. And, you know, walking into our tiny factory and just seeing all the clothes, you could go like, yikes, this is a problem that's way too big to solve, you know. But, you know, to just dive in and you know, play and try to entrust that the answers will, will emerge and, you know, to, to just dive into the problem, you know. Try to be hopeful. The environment can get me like, yikes, some days are we moving deck chairs on the Titanic? Like, how many more years do we really have to get this right? You know, so, but we got to try. We got to keep going. That's what motivates me. So can you tell me about a life-changing moment that you've had on your journey? Oh, goodness. Uh, life-changing moment. Uh, yikes. Uh, yeah, I, I never think of it so much as those aha moments, you know. Uh, I, I have, I, 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 I did some personal work with a, a teacher once that was really interesting. Um, that uh, sort of helped me let go of fear. It was, uh, was a kind of trauma-related work, and it was really interesting. And I noticed, you know, I, I had this issue around being afraid of, you know, this is probably too personal. Um, but uh, with my ex-husband, you know, we, we had a kind of difficult divorce. divorce. We're, good, we're good now, we're friends. We work on things together. But anyway... Um, I I have a lot of I have a lot a lot of fear in my life, you know. I you know that's my shyness and fear of public speaking and you know um, sometimes just fear of speaking up and saying what I need or saying what's true. And uh, I did some work with this woman, and all of a sudden it was like, yikes! Right after that, I I stopped being triggered or afraid when I'd see my ex-husband. It was something in his voice would just make me shut down. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm free. I'm not afraid. I can just talk, you know? And uh, I know that sounds like a weird example, but it, what happened is it started loosening the fear thing in general in my life. Like, oh, I can just be with this terrifying thing, you know, this really uncomfortable situation or you know it could be a meeting it could be a situation with one of my children or you know when my mother was dying or you know different things you know that are really hard I could be with it you know and just sit with the fear and I can live through it somehow there's some I don't know freedom in that thank you for sharing that might be too personal for a conscious business. No, conscious no. Company podcast. Well, that's, I mean, that's also what we want to talk about is yeah. bringing the personal element yeah. into business. And that's yeah. something that women do particularly well. So yeah. it's, it's interesting because fear, it, you know, around fear, it gets, it really got in my way. But when it came to starting my business, somehow I wasn't afraid because I felt this idea was bigger than me, you know? It's weird. It was coming through me. It was like, I, and I could see a pathway how it could speak for itself. 
I didn't have to speak for it. Now, now it's sort of funny. I'm in a different phase where I'm like trying to speak for the idea or speak up for myself in different situations. And, and I'm still, you know, I'm sort of breaking through different, different layers of fear. Mm. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Strange. <laughs> All right. Okay. So. From the, well, the entire body of your work thus far, mm-hmm. um, if you were to be able to distill that down into the top two to three lessons for business leaders, right. what do you feel those would be? Um, I think one is staying true, staying true to, you know, your own feeling, your own intuition, and the sense of what your idea or this idea business is about what it really matters about it um and other other lessons listen 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 always listen listen because you know we are i always say we're only half right you know i'm only half right i started this it's coming through me but i'm only half right you know other people are in the midst of doing you know they have so much to bring you know so always listen Listen to the customers, listen to the other employees, listen, listen to, you know, the outside world, you know. Um, I'm curious for you, age 68, and in this beautiful time you are in your life right Uh, now, what is the most... Precious, time. Yeah. What is the most important thing in your life right now? Oh, my kids. Mm. (laughs) Period. My kids, Yeah. Yeah. Of course, my work. My work is one of my kids, too. (laughs) So my kids and my work, you know. So leaving them all, you know, intact and feeling, you know, feeling proud of who they are and who the company is. You know, that's my wish to to leave this world with, you know, those pieces as intact as I can and, you know, do the best I can Mm. and, and try to just you know, preciously recognize the preciousness of these moments and just kind of show up where I can and do the best I can. And finally, what is giving you hope for the future? Uh, Hope. Hope is the young people. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. All of you young people. You know, you're, oh, just so aware, so self-aware and so aware of the environmental issues and you know, women's issues and what needs to change and you're, you know, so engaged, it's, it's inspiring to see. A huge thank you to Eileen Fisher herself and the entire Eileen Fisher team, as well as to StoryPop Media, our incredible producers behind the podcast. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. A huge thank you to Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.